Like the office they commemorate, presidential libraries are living institutions. Certainly it is my hope that the Reagan Library will become a dynamic intellectual forum where scholars interpret the past and policymakers debate the future. Welcome to a Reagan Forum, hosted by the Ronald Reagan Presidential Foundation and Institute. The Center for Public Affairs offers lectures and forums presenting perspectives on important public policy issues of the day from politicians, authors, members of the media, business and military leaders, and more. In this week's Reagan Forum, we look back to July 14, 2009, when Condoleezza Rice addressed our audience. It was less than seven months after serving our nation as the 66th Secretary of State, the first African-American woman to ever serve in this position. Her speech was the most attended Reagan Forum in the library's 18-year history. Condoleezza Rice has many things in common with President Reagan. Like the president, she began her political aspirations with the Democratic Party before switching her party registration and loyalty to the Republican Party. And like the president, her unwavering commitment to freedom and democracy and liberty over tyranny led her to an influential position in government, critical in our nation instituting change. During President Reagan's administration, Condoleezza Rice served as Special Assistant to the Director of Joint Chiefs of Staff and as an Arms Control and Foreign Policy Specialist. She begins her remarks at the Reagan Library by stating that standing up for democracy is the proposition she wants to defend. Let's listen. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you very, very much. Thank you for that wonderful, warm welcome. It is always so great uh, to be here at uh, the Reagan Library, uh, one of the truly transformational presidents of uh, all time in our history, and it's an honor to speak from this podium. It's especially an honor to join my good friend and uh, my mentor in many ways, Nancy Reagan, again. Thank you, Nancy, for continuing this great work. Well, Fred did say that I had the great honor of accompanying Yo-Yo Ma. That is true. Um, I went to college as a music major, decided after a couple of years that I was pretty good but not great and was going to probably end up teaching 13-year-olds to murder Beethoven or perhaps playing at Nordstrom but not playing Carnegie Hall. <laughs> and uh, I just want everyone to know that I was not confused about why I got to accompany Yo-Yo Ma. It was a good thing I changed my major. And so it was indeed a, a great honor to do that, and um, I, I love music, I love sports. It's, um, it's great to be able to do so many things in this country, and these days it's great to be able to do them without getting up and reading the newspaper and thinking that I have to do something about what's in it. So uh, it's been a nice transition back home to California. I'd like to spend a few minutes uh, tonight before we um, open up for questions talking about a subject that's been very much on my mind um, as I look through the difficult and critical circumstances in which we find ourselves. Because I'm quite convinced that when times are hard, it's the most important thing that you can do is to go back to first principles, to go back to uh, your values, to go back to uh, what guides you, the lodestar that should uh, move you forward. 
And so I'd like to entitle my remarks uh, tonight, the few remarks that I'll make about foreign policy, Why Democracy Matters. And it's uh, a bit odd, I think, that a former Secretary of State would have to actually defend the proposition that democracy matters. But I think we'd better start defending that proposition. You know, in part, I'm driven to, to talk about this because um, I served in a pretty controversial and con consequential time the last eight years. But as many controversial matters uh, that came before us, the one that seems to have been most controversial was to speak firmly for the democracy agenda, for the freedom agenda. People said we were too idealistic to believe uh, the democracy could spread to corners where it had, no, had never taken, uh, taken root. That it was impractical somehow. That somehow it was not serving U.S. interests to speak strongly and firmly for the rights of every man, woman, and child to live in freedom. That somehow it was not practical to believe that people, regardless of their station in life, regardless of their culture, regardless of their circumstances, would want to enjoy the very rights that we all enjoy. But somehow that was impractical and it was uh, too idealistic. But you know, standing for democracy as the United States of America is both practical and right. And that's the proposition that I want to defend to you tonight. The United States has got to stand for the universality of freedom and the universality of democracy. And it has to stand for it because it is right, it is the moral thing to do, but also because it is in our interest to do so. President Reagan, in his second inaugural, had one simple line that captured that. He said, America must remain freedom's staunchest defender, for freedom is our best ally. Remain a staunch defender because it is right, but also because freedom is our best ally. Democracy, of course, is the institutionalization of freedom. And so it is not just that every man, woman, and child ought to be free, but that they ought to live in societies and be governed in ways that actually institutionalize and protect those freedoms, whether it is the freedom of speech, the freedom of conscience, the freedom to worship as one pleases, the freedom of association, the freedom to choose those who will govern you, the freedom to be free from the knock of the secret police, the freedom to be free from the arbitrary power of the government. These are the institutionalizations of freedom that we call democracy. And it is clearly in our interest when around the world, country after country, ruler after ruler, leader after leader, has to recognize that these freedoms are universal and that they should be allowed for every man, woman, and child. No man, woman, or child should be condemned to live in tyranny. So why is this proposition so controversial? Well, there are several objections. 
One, that you cannot impose democracy. You cannot impose it by bayonet point. You cannot impose it from abroad. This is most certainly true. But the fact of the matter is, if we look around the world, and we look, for instance, at the recent events in Iran, we see something that I think is a fundamental truth. You don't actually have to impose democracy. You have to impose tyranny. If men, women, and children are asked, do they want to have a say in their future, or would they have it dictated to them from on high, they will choose to have a say in their, in their future. And so you don't impose democracy, you impose tyranny. What about the argument that there are people who are perhaps just not ready for democracy? Well, this to me is one of the most patronizing things that one can say. We are ready, but they're not. And by the way, it's been said at various times by about a lot of people. It was said once that Latin Americans weren't ready for democracy. They were given to military juntas and coups. They didn't care about democracy. It was once said that Africans didn't care about democracy. They were just too tribal. And of course, it didn't matter to them that they had a right to have a say in their future. And by the way, it was once said of black people. They were too childlike. They didn't care about the vote. They weren't really ready for democracy. Well, of course, everyone is ready for freedom and ready for democracy. It may well be that economic circumstances are such that it makes democracy hard. It may well be that the absence of traditions in democracy make democracy hard. It may well be that the absence of civil society, of a strong fabric to society, makes democracy hard. But saying that democracy is hard and saying that someone is not ready for democracy are two very different things. The idea that there are some who are just not ready for democracy is both patronizing and it is insidious. Third, there's the argument that perhaps countries can go through authoritarian capitalism and do quite well anyway. So why bother with democracy? And of course, the example that's most often given here is China. They're doing quite well, thank you very much, with authoritarian capitalism. But one has to wonder if this is a long-term proposition for success. Because after all, it's awfully hard to tell people that they can think at work, but not at home. And one wonders if the tremendous economic success of China, that is clearly quite extraordinary, is not creating the kinds of strains and stresses in that society that ultimately will not be dealt with by a rigid political system governed from the top down. I don't mean to suggest that China is in danger of collapse, but there's one wonderful thing about democracy. It's big and it's messy and it's chaotic. Someone once called it controlled chaos. Well, you might wonder sometimes about the controlled piece. But it is accordion-like. It is capable of giving people institutions in which they can try and resolve their differences peacefully. 
it is capable of giving people a say in how those differences are resolved. And finally, in the final analysis, if you don't like those who are governing you, you can throw the bums out. And that, more than anything, is the final shock absorber. And you see in China instead growing strains and stresses from this tremendous economic and social upheaval. You know, we've seen it in many ways. We've seen it recently with these riots among Uyghurs. The people of uh, East Turkmenistan, as, as the uh, Chinese call it, which, who are unable to express themselves because if there is difference and it is in a dictatorial society, there's only one way to deal with, deal with it. Somebody suppresses somebody. And so ethnic rights tend not to be protected in authoritarian societies. We saw it when China had difficulty after the earthquake explaining to the parents of Chengdu, a place that I visited after the earthquake, why the school collapsed and killed children, but the party headquarters, just a little way away, didn't collapse. And the anger of those parents at the shoddy workmanship in that school was palpable. They had really nowhere to go. We saw it in the product safety issue in China where the government seemed to be unable to deal with and where their solution was to execute the guy who dealt with product safety. Now, this is not a long-term solution because sooner or later, nobody's going to want to deal with product safety. And so the question for authoritarian capitalism is, in the long run, can it reach an equilibrium? Can it tell its people to get wealthier, to have greater property interest, and still to allow politics to be held in the hands of a very few? I think not. There is finally the argument, perhaps more difficult, and mostly used in the Middle East, that when you have democracy, when you have elections, before a society is fully matured in civil society and the like, sometimes the bad guys win. And what do you do when the bad guys win? Well, we faced this quite a few times during the period of uh, my tenure in office. We saw Hamas win in the 2006 elections in the Palestinian territories. We saw Hezbollah do well in the 2007 elections in, in, in the 2005 elections in Lebanon. We saw Islamist parties do well in the first elections in Iraq. But you know, an interesting thing has happened. The second time around, the extremists have not done very well at all. And one wonders why that is. Well, I would suggest to you that while elections are not the only step that one must take toward democracy, they are a fully necessary step. And what you see is that in authoritarian societies, particularly in the Middle East, there was politics going on, but it was going on in the radical mosques and it was going on in the radical madrasas. And decent political forces were not allowed to organize. And in that freedom gap, as a group of Arab intellectuals called it, you got not only the organization of the most extreme forces, but you also got the kind of nihilist forces like Al-Qaeda, a different kind of politics. 
decent political forces did not come into being in the Middle East. But now in freer environments like Lebanon and Iraq and even the Palestinian territories, you are seeing that decent political forces the second time around are doing better. So in Lebanon, my favorite example, Hezbollah lost in this last election. Now, why did Hezbollah lose? Well, in part, because uh, it turns out that they weren't the great resistance movement. They used their arms against the Lebanese people in May of 2007. And you know what? The Lebanese people had a way to punish them. They punished them at the ballot box. Where else could the Lebanese people have punished a terrorist group like Hezbollah? You see in Iraq that in the most recent provincial elections, the Islamist parties, the most extreme parties, the parties funded by Iran lost, and more decent political parties did better. I think that it is quite possible that what we will see is that as elections take place, in the first round, the, the bad guys may indeed win because they're the best organized. They were in the radical mosques. They were in the radical madrasas. But as time goes on, the slogan, make your children, vote for us, and we will make your children suicide bombers, won't do very well at the ballot box. And if decent political forces with a different message can come forward, then this will turn out for the better. So I don't think that there are really good arguments for those who say that either the United States should not advocate for democracy, should not make it a pillar of foreign policy, or that we should just wait until it somehow naturally emerges, as if democracy somehow naturally emerges. People fight for democracy, and America has to be their ally in that fight. To be sure, elections are not sufficient. We have to support democratically elected governments because one important thing happens when people go to the ballot box, they expect more of their governments. And that's why foreign assistance in the Bush administration, we attempted to tie to democratic processes, to good governance, to the absence of corruption. And it's why countries like Ghana, that President Obama just visited, were granted huge amounts of money for their size, more than $500 million to Ghana, or Tanzania, more than $800 million to Tanzania, because these were, governors, these were places that were trying to govern wisely, trying to govern democratically, and they need support so that their people can see that they can deliver. It's also true that it's not a straight line. There will be ups and downs. It will go back and forth. And part of the issue is not to lose heart when it does. Because we have to remember that history has a long tail, not a short one. I used to make uh, not very many friends in the press when I would say to them that, um, Today's headlines and history's judgment are rarely the same. But it is true. If you look to any point in time, you can see that there were times when something looked so impossible, and not very long after, it just seemed inevitable. You know, I, at the State Department, I used to take people through a little soliloquy about the period immediately after World War II to demonstrate this point. Because I was lucky enough in 1989 to 1991 
to be the White House Soviet specialist at the end of the Cold War. It doesn't get much better than that. But I was harvesting good decisions that had been taken for a long time before. And if you went to work at the State Department in 1946, you faced the French communists winning 46% of the vote and the Italian communists 48% of the vote. In 1947, civil war in Greece and civil conflict in Turkey. Two million Europeans still starving, necessitating the Marshall Plan. In 1948, the Berlin crisis, the recognition of Israel by Harry Truman setting off war in the Middle East. In 1948, Czechoslovakia falls to a communist coup. In 1949, the Soviet Union explodes a nuclear weapon five years ahead of schedule. The Chinese communists win. And in 1950, the Korean War broke out. Would you have dreamed that in 1991, the hammer and sickle would come down from the Kremlin for the last time, 75 years of communism, never mind. And in 2006, the President of the United States would attend a NATO summit in Latvia. Those things that once seemed impossible, in retrospect, seem inevitable. And so history has a long tail. And our part is to do what is right for history, not what is right for the day's headlines. That was the essence of Ronald Reagan. I can remember, quite frankly, when Ronald Reagan gave his landmark speech and called the Soviet Union an evil empire, said that it would end up on the ash heap of history. And I have to admit, I thought, oh my goodness, how undiplomatic. <laughs> but you know, it was right. And it was calling it as he saw it. And in calling as he, as he saw it, he emboldened a whole generation of people who knew that they were living in a society and in a state that was a lie. And he spurred leaders like Mikhail Gorbachev to try not to destroy the system, but to reform it. But of course, it was rotten to the core. And in trying to reform it, Gorbachev did destroy it. And this mighty Soviet Union, with 30,000 nuclear weapons, 5 million men under arms, stretching 12 time zones, collapsed without a shot. History has a long tail. But that long tail only comes out in our favor if we're true throughout that entire period to our values and to our principles. Now, we have to stand for democracy, and we cannot be neutral about what form of government is right. We have to know that it takes time. But there is one other thing that we have to do. We have to continue, of course, to work on our own democracy, because ours, too, is a work in progress. I loved representing this great country. George Shultz once said that being Secretary of State was the best job in government. Well, George should know he held every other job in government, and therefore he had some ways to com for comparison. But as Secretary of State, you get to represent the United States of America. And I'll tell you something. The United States of America is the freest, the most compassionate, and the most generous country on the face of the earth. And whatever the world's problems, they would be far, far worse if the United States were not also the most powerful state on the face of the earth.
And so many times I had the chance as I represented the United States to talk to people who were still struggling to come to democracy in Iraq and Afghanistan, Palestinians, and so forth. And I could speak from the perspective of someone who knows that our democracy was far from perfect at its birth. My ancestors were three-fifths of a man in that first constitution. As a daughter of the segregated South, who could not go to a restaurant until I was 10 years old, I knew America's foibles, I knew America's challenges, and I could say, we stand for democracy not because we are perfect, but because we're imperfect, and because we know that only with democratic institutions to point toward can people strive day in and day out for that more perfect union. But I also got to see something else that in times like these hardened me quite a lot and make me optimistic in that way that really only Americans are optimistic. I got to see what it is that people really love abroad, around the world, about the United States. And it relates to our great national myth. More from a Reagan Forum featuring Dr. Condoleezza Rice after this message. The Ronald Reagan Presidential Foundation is the nonprofit organization created by President Reagan himself and specifically charged by him with continuing his legacy and sharing his principles, individual liberty, economic opportunity, global democracy, and national pride. We must remain vigilant and work together to share these conservative principles with younger generations. Your role is critical to move our mission forward Thank you for your continued support. Please visit reaganfoundation.org slash give. That's reaganfoundation.org slash give. Now back to a Reagan form featuring Dr. Condoleezza Rice. Now a myth is not something that is untrue. It's just something that's a little bit outsized. And, um, you know, for some countries, that great national myth is we had that land in 1389 and lost it, and we're going to get it back. That is not a healthy national myth. Our national myth is the log cabin. You can come from humble circumstances, and you can do great things. It doesn't matter where you came from. It only matters where you're going. And that's what people admire about America. They may fear our military power. They may resent our economic power. Sometimes they think we're a bit naive and a bit idealistic. But they know one thing for certain. They know that countless people have come to this country and made a life so much better for themselves than they could ever have imagined. And it is why people still seek to come to this country. And it is why we should want those people to come to this country. Because whether it is the person who crawls across the desert to make $5, not 50 cents, a Sergey Brin who comes from Russia and founds Google, America should want the most ambitious and courageous people in the world to be a part of us. It is also true that if we are going to make our national myth a reality, we have to be able to answer that other part. It means that for Americans who are here, 
it has to matter not where you came from, but where you're going. And as Secretary of State, it worried me that there are pockets in America where that may no longer be true. As an educator, I find that devastating. You see, I come from a family where education was everything. My, father, my father's father was my great hero, a man named John Wesley Rice, Sr. And in 1919, he decided he wanted to get book learning. And so he asked how a colored man could get book learning and get, go to college, and they taught him, told him about Stillman College down the road. He saved up his cotton, he went to Stillman College, he went through his first year of college, and then the second year they said, so how are you going to pay for the second year? And he said, well, I don't have any more money and no more cotton. They said, you'll have to leave. And thinking quickly, he said, so how are those boys going to school? They said, well, they have what's called a scholarship, and if you wanted to be a Presbyterian minister, you could have a scholarship too. <laughs> and Granddaddy Rice said, well, you know, that's exactly what I had in mind. <laughs> and my family has been college-educated and, and Presbyterian ever since. <laughs> But you know, my grandfather understood something. He understood the transforming power of education. He understood that he was going to be somebody he could never, ever have been without it. And when I think about what we need to do to strengthen our own democracy, I think about going back to what matters, to our creativity, to our innovation, to our belief in private sector-led growth, to our belief that not all of the answers come from government, that in fact they come from the people, that not all of the solutions come from Washington, but that they come from the people. But most importantly, that we believe that all of the people have a chance to reach their full potential. And that is only done when the educational system, which I'm afraid doesn't serve our kids very well today, is capable of delivering on the American dream, if you wish to call it that, the great national myth, which I wish to call it the log cabin. This is a terrific country, and we will be all right if we continue to focus on our core strengths and if we stand with those who believe also in those core values. The United States of America will be just fine, finding again the optimism that led to the founding of this country against all odds, that led to the westward movement across the, the continental divide in covered wagons, that led to the day when the daughter of a man who could not vote in 1952 would find herself as Secretary of State, and yes, to the day when an African-American would be elected President of the United States. That kind of optimism that Americans have, that what was one day, one, one day seemed impossible, would one day seem inevitable, is the core of who we are. And it is why the United States of America will always lead and must always lead. Thank you very much.
Thank you. Thank you so much. Uh, thank you so much, Madam Secretary. Uh, Secretary Rice has been kind enough to agree to answer some questions. We have just a few minutes for some questions. The one rule of thumb I would like to uh, make is to just be sure to raise your hand and before you stand up and ask your question, we will have one of our staff members that are floating around the rooms bring a microphone to you so that we can hear the question. Uh, do we have any questions? Uh, yes, right over here. I would like to know uh, which in history is your favorite Secretary of State? Uh, yes, in fact, I'll, I'll use this, the question to tell you about I kept four Secretaries of State's portraits near me. Thomas Jefferson, everybody has Thomas Jefferson, uh, founding father, you remember him, first Secretary of State. Um, I had George Marshall, probably the greatest Secretary of State of all time. Dean Acheson. The Secretary of State who, when he left office, uh, was known for who lost China, and who we only remember now as the founder of NATO and laying the foundation for the end of the Cold War, and William Seward. Because uh, if ever today's headlines and history's judgments, William Seward, who bought Alaska from the Tsar of Russia, and who was accused of Seward's folly and Seward's icebox, and so Don Rumsfeld took the uh, then Minister of Defense of Russia to Alaska, a man named Sergei Ivanov. And Sergei said to me, Hilkandi, I thought Alaska was so beautiful. He said, it reminded me of Russia. I said, Sergei, it used to be Russia. <laughs> uh, yes, right here. Thank you, Trudy. Uh, I have a question. Uh, that's concerned me uh, about one of our great leaders that uh, I used to uh, have as a boss at the Pentagon. And uh, in fact, one of the times uh, when the Judge Advocate General couldn't go to the Army-Navy game, John was told to go to the Army-Navy game with uh, Colin Powell, uh, who I admired a lot. President Reagan told me in this very building that he thought he'd make a good president. And I'm wondering, what has happened to General Powell to cause him to go from being such a dynamic uh, person in favor of the things you've been talking about to be f wanting us to follow a president that's trying to lead us down the same road that uh, Lenin led the Russians? Yeah. Look, Colin is a very good friend, and we are, we are still in contact. Uh, he's, a, he's an emailer, and we're in contact all the, day, all the time. I think that Colin is somebody who does stand strongly for uh, the values. I, this is a man that I've known since um, I was a young professor on the, uh, taking a year's leave on the joint staff, and uh, he was a national security advisor. And uh, he's been very influential in my development and in my life. And I know what values he holds. And I've watched him and I've worked with him and I know the values that he holds. Uh, there is nothing that I've said here today that I think he would, would disagree with. He believes in democracy, he fought for it, uh, he wore the uniform and wore it proudly and, and wore it 
uh, brilliantly and, uh, and believes a lot in the private sector. I don't know what, what, what led Colin to make the decisions that he made about this last election, but, you know, people get to make, that's part of what we get as Americans. We get to make our choices at any given time, and we don't have to shed our party affiliation to do it. Um, I think our party, the Republican Party, and I'm a Republican, I think the Republican Party, <laughs> I think the Republican Party will be well served by broadening and not having a litmus test for being a Republican. I think the values that we share are pretty clear, and I welcome anybody that shares those values. I think we believe in a strong national defense for this country. I think we believe that America is exceptional in history and exceptional in the world and therefore has to lead. That's what Ronald Reagan stood for. I think we believe in uh, the, the private sector as the engine of growth. I think we believe in low regulation and letting the American people keep some of their own money in their own pockets because they'll spend it better than the government might do. And those are the core beliefs. And then we're going to disagree about a whole variety of issues. And sometimes we'll make choices that, uh, some of us will make choices that uh, are not uh, appreciated or well understood by others. But let's stay focused on the need for a conservative movement that has answers to today's problems and tomorrow's challenges but does so from the core values that have served us well in the past. Up here. From the balcony. Thank you for coming, Madam Secretary. Um, I was fortunate enough a few weeks ago to be at the Aspen Institute where education was a major component of discussion. And I was wondering if you feel that the Obama administration is making the right steps into improving it as we were once known as being the education guru, not just in universities, but also from K up, if you would. So I was wondering if you could answer that, please. Thank you. Sure, I've, I've taken an oath not to comment on uh, the, how the Obama administration is doing. I told, uh, I think I'm, I'm with President Bush here. I think we owe them our silence and, and our loyalty. And I know what it's like to have people chirp at you from the sidelines when you're just trying to do your job. But let me just speak to, uh, to a couple of things that I think are very important in the current debate about education reform. And, uh, and there are some very strong uh, reformists among superintendents now, uh, whether it's Michelle Rhee in Washington or Joel Klein in New York or Beverly Hall in Atlanta. And actually, Arne Duncan from Chicago, who's now current Secretary of Education, was one of those strong reformists um, among the superintendents. But what are we talking about? I'm, I first really um, became um, enamored of uh, the agenda of uh, George W. Bush, interestingly, not around foreign policy, but around one phrase, the soft bigotry of low expectations. I have seen it when our schools believe that there are some kids who just can't learn, or maybe it's not that important that they learn, 
or maybe they ought to have self-esteem, so don't ever tell them that they're wrong. You know, it's, it is really a civil rights issue that we warehouse so many of our kids and that we don't hold those accountable who are miseducating them. It, I'm all for spending more money in education. I'm all for spending more money for teachers. Teachers ought to be paid more. But I really believe we have to demand results for it, for it in the classroom, from individual schools. I'm told, and I don't, um, I don't want to, to misquote the statistics, but I believe these statistics are right, that there are some 2,000 high schools in America that are, are responsible for 70% of the dropouts. Right, so we've got dropout factories. Why do we have them? And so what No Child Left Behind tried to do, and I think was very important, was to assess. You don't know how big the problem is unless you actually measure the problem. And so measurement continues to be important. And then accountability needs to be a part of it. And then teachers need to be rewarded for good performance in the schoolrooms. And those who don't believe that kids can be educated ought to get out of the way because it's not their children that are being miseducated. Now, I do have one other point that I'd like to make, and it's a little bit special pleading. Um, the one thing that I've seen drop out of the schools in too many places are the arts, music and the arts. Um, they are not an add-on. They are an essential part of cognitive development, and they are an essential part of being able to stand up in front of adults and perform well. And I believe that if we go back to not just the basics, reading, writing, and arithmetic, but also to the arts where kids get, that's how they get self-esteem. They learn to play and perform. We know that if you learn to play a musical instrument early, your brain imprints differently. And it, by the way, imprints in the same part that teaches you languages and perhaps mathematics. So... I want to see a broader, enriched education for all of our children. And here, it really can't matter what your zip code is. You really have got to have access to, to uh, a quality education. Thank you. I would like to have you comment, if you would, please, on the problems with the demise of newspapers and the result of just watching bites on television and how it's going to affect a democracy. Well, it's a very good question. I was as, as uh, angry at the press some days as anybody. And, uh, and as I said, it is really pleasant to get up and not read the newspaper thinking I have to do something about what's in it. I just get up, I read the newspaper, and I move on. Um, but a democracy cannot function properly without information in breadth and depth. And I think that what we're losing is information in depth. There's lots of information out there, and you can watch cable television, and you can learn about any and everything you want to. But, um, and I, by the way, I do watch cable television and not just ESPN. Um, so I, I am a fan of cable television. But it is also true 
that you can't in the 30-second soundbite or the five-minute debate um, or even the 30-minute news show uh, learn in depth the way that you can from reading a newspaper. Now, whether you read it online or in a sheet, I think is uh, another issue. But I worry about the demise of newspapers. I worry about the fact that so many good regional papers um, are in trouble because regional papers are not just a reflection of the national uh, news. They are uh, they cover issues in regions that don't get covered. They get they cover state capitals that don't get covered. And I don't know how, uh, I'm not smart enough to know what business model will bring them back. But um, I'll just tell you, very interesting, when I used to go to Moscow back in 84, 85, before uh, Perestroika really opened up, the first people I would go to see were the journalists there. Because they were, they had a fingertip feel. They were out in the streets. And so foreign news coverage is important, having people who can go and cover countries uh, on the ground. Um, I can't give you an answer to how we fix it, but I think it is a real, really damaging turn of events. And uh, newspapers and in-depth uh, knowledge of events is extremely important to a well-functioning democracy. We have time for one last question. <clears throat> Hi. Um, with everything that we hear about going on on a daily basis between Israel, between Iran, North Korea, and that's on the world stage, and then the things we see happening in our own country right now, which looks like things are somewhat imploding, and then looking at your message of optimism, are these things real, what we're seeing, or are they simply an opportunity? And if they are, how do we turn it around? Yes. Well, I believe that uh, one reason I remain optimistic is the international system always, always has puts and takes. Some things are going well, some things are not going so well. And um, I, I actually think the Middle East is going better than advertised. Um, when, I, when people say, oh, the Middle East is in so much worse shape as you're leaving than when you came, I think, well, what Middle East were we talking about? Was that the Middle East in which Al-Qaeda was bubbling up from the surface uh, and you know, had been created essentially in Saudi Arabia and was bubbling up from the surface? Is that the Middle East in which Saddam Hussein was putting 300,000 people in mass graves, flying, uh, shooting at our aircraft uh, practically every day, uh, seeking uh, weapons of mass destruction, uh, threatening to invade Kuwait again? Was that the Middle East in which Syrian forces were uh, deep into Lebanon, uh, probably uh, helping to assassinate Lebanese uh, leaders. You know, which, which Middle East was it that was so great? Was that the Middle East in which Palestinians um, were, had launched a second intifada after Camp David failed um, and Israelis were dying, uh, not just, Israelis and Palestinians were dying, not just uh, in the far reaches of Gaza, but in Tel Aviv. So when I look back, that Middle East doesn't look so great. And I look at the current Middle East, and I know it's very tough, but I see the following new pillars. I see an Iraq, which the most strategically important country in the Middle East, which used to be an implacable enemy of the United States, ruled by a maniacal dictator who did kill his own people, used weapons of mass destruction, and I see that replaced by a, to be sure, fragile, but democratic uh, government in Iraq that is responsive to its people, that is going to be a bulwark against Iran because the Iraqis don't care for the Iranians and don't want them in their affairs. So I see that Iraq as 
potentially a very important part of the New Middle East. I see a Lebanon in which uh, we have a democratically elected Western-oriented government. Syrian forces are gone. That, tends to be, that turns out to be important. I see a Palestinian uh, leadership that is split, to be sure, but one part of it under Mahmoud Abbas that has given up on violence, believes in negotiation, is trying to build a decent life for people um, in the West Bank. And I see in Iran a very interesting phenomenon. I see that these bloody tyrants wanted somehow legitimacy. And so they held a fake election. And then they tried to win the fake election by more than they might have won it. And so 51% wasn't enough, it had to be 62.2%. And surprise, surprise, people reacted against that. And I don't care whether this regime lasts a year or three years or five years, it's done. It has lost any sense of legitimacy with its own people. This is a country in which the great majority Something, I believe, like 70% of the people are under the age of 35. And what now is their seminal political memory? It is what happened in Tehran in the streets. And so they've lost their best and their brightest forever. And in part, they lost it because the world turned on Ahmadinejad and they, he, was made, he was shown to be uh, incompetent as well as a dictator. And that's a healthy development in Iran. Now, I feel for those people in the streets and the way that, that this brutal regime will put them down. But it's now a hollow shell. And if we don't do anything to prop it up, just like the Soviet Union was a hollow shell, it too will collapse. I don't know if it'll be next year or five years from now, but the Iranian regime, I believe, is done. Thank you. <clears throat> We'll take, we'll take one final, final question. Mr. Dreyfus. Rice, I was very pleased that we began this evening with the Pledge of Allegiance, and I wanted to remind people that we have fought so bitterly over the phrase, under God, that we have forgotten that we are pledging allegiance to the Republic, and that we don't teach the Republic in American public schools. We are the only sovereign in history, if Jefferson's words are to mean anything, uh, who is not tutored. Aristotle tutored Alexander. And we are being tutored only by Rupert Murdoch. And that's not good enough. And I'm wondering if you could speak for a moment to those tools of civic expertise that must be taught to raise up devotion to a country that is bound only by ideas. And if those ideas are not taught, we are not bound. Yes. Well, you've said it, uh, you've said it awfully well. You know, uh, we are, in fact, bound by ideas, and an ideal. Uh, but those ideas and those ideals are expressed in a history and a set of institutions that came into being for a specific set of reasons but have evolved over time 
in an ever better and more inclusive way. What's remarkable to me is that when Frederick Douglass advocated on behalf of slaves, or when Martin Luther King advocated on behalf of the oppressed, they did so within the context of America's institutions. They didn't have to go outside of those institutions. Those institutions were just fine. It's just we weren't living up to those institutions and to the ideals uh, behind them. And somehow, um, generation after generation after generation has to understand that. In order not to take them for granted, and in order uh, not, to, um, to, not, not to take them for, for granted and to continue to fight for them, to continue to vote, to continue to work on behalf of those who are less fortunate, to insist that uh, the press is free, to insist that uh, freedom of religion is truly freedom of religion. You can be Muslim or Jewish or Catholic or Protestant or nothing at all, and you're still American, and that has to be taught. And I don't think, I know we don't teach it in our schools. I had civics, by the way, in fourth grade. Now, it's true, it was taught in Alabama, so it was a little slanted toward the Confederacy, but that's all right. <laughs> I was taught civics. We ought to teach it in our schools, and we ought to teach it unashamedly in our schools. It's not to say that others' systems, others' institutions are not valuable, are not good, to teach the value of your own. But America is exceptional. And what I would most want the next generation to understand is just how exceptional it is. Because as you go around the world, and difference is a license to kill, and you go around America, and you see the faces and hear the accents of every place on Earth, whether they are Mexican-American or Korean-American, or German-American, or African-American, they're American. That is an extraordinary feat for human beings. I think we have to teach civics, we have to teach our institutions, and we have to teach how exceptional America is. There's nothing to my mind that is chauvinistic about that. It is simply the fact. And if we could get over our shyness, uh, our disregard even, for the importance of passing those values on, that history on, and those responsibilities on, those obligations on, not just those rights, but those obligations, then I think we, will, we would be much the better for it. Thank you very much, Secretary Rice. at the Reagan Foundation have become so fortunate to call Dr. Condoleezza Rice a friend. In addition to this address she delivered in July, she also spoke at the Reagan Library in 2003, 2010, 2011, and 2017. In addition, in 2011, she traveled to Europe with us to represent Mrs. Reagan as we celebrated the centennial birthday of Ronald Reagan. You can find many of her Reagan form speeches on our YouTube channel at youtube.com slash Reagan Foundation. Thank you for listening. To find a listing of all upcoming events, please visit reaganfoundation.org events. For more information on the Ronald Reagan Presidential Foundation and Institute, including information on how to become a member, 
information on upcoming exhibits at the Reagan Library, and more information on the legacy of President Reagan, please visit reaganfoundation.org. And don't forget to like and follow the Reagan Foundation on all social media platforms. Until next week, thanks for listening, and God bless you. Don't forget to subscribe to a Reagan Forum podcast in your iTunes or Google Play stores and on other podcast platforms as they become available. New episodes of a Reagan Forum come out every Thursday. Like what you hear? Check out our Words to Live By podcast featuring radio addresses and speeches Ronald Reagan delivered from the 1960s through the 1980s. New episodes drop every Tuesday. And don't forget to follow at Ronald Reagan on Facebook, at Ronald Reagan 40 on Twitter, and Reagan Foundation on YouTube. Also, search for us on SoundCloud and Stitcher.